Hello, and welcome to Alohomora, a new podcast brought to you by the staff of MuggleNet.com and Harry Potter fans all over the world. This is episode one. MuggleNet.com for the past four years. I work on fan art and MuggleNet editorials. And I'm Kat Miller. I live in Massachusetts. I've been with MuggleNet just over five years, and I mostly do fan of the week, and I help with the news. And I'm Caleb Graves. I live in Washington, D.C. I work on MuggleNet Interactive for the past five years, MuggleNet for the past year. And we also have a special fan guest host today. My name is Hope Forgey. I live in Denver, Colorado, but originally from uh, Massachusetts. I teach here in Denver. I am a sixth grade teacher and am thrilled to be with you today. So thank you. Okay, so we're going to jump into describing what this, uh, what this podcast is all about. So if you've been following uh, MuggleNet news lately, there have been whisperings of a, a mysterious door on MuggleNet, a Dumbledore in which you've been asked to go through. There have been keys and clues hidden all over the website. It is a brand new thing. MuggleNet.com is going to lead a reread of the entire Harry Potter series for the fandom. Lately, we've sort of lost, you know, the movies have been released, and we've lost a little bit of the, a little bit of the magic, a little bit of the text debates, discussions that we had leading up to the final movie release. This, this podcast is all about reading the books and going in and looking at them in different ways, or, you know, looking at minute details and doing close reads having fun as we do so. We're going to also do something very special with this podcast. We're going to bring a new fan on every single show, and they're going to join us to discuss everything, because every week and every new podcast, we're going to do another three chapters from the book. Now, the great thing about this podcast is it's also joined with a MuggleNet section. This is a brand new section, and you're going to be able to discuss each podcast and discuss the readings every day. In fact, you can just go online, meet new fans, and as you, you know, follow the story on Pottermore, you look at all the illustrations, now you can also go on MuggleNet and you could, you could share all the content that comes to you. You can be inspired, you can write an essay, you can share your own artwork, you can have a discussion based on the books. Basically, you really just have to be a, a great nerd if you're going to listen to this podcast because we're going to go into each detail. We're going to bring out everything in the chapter. So without further ado, let's, let's start this. This week we're starting with chapters 1, 2, 3 of Philosopher's Stone. Are you guys ready? Absolutely. So ready. We are starting with chapter one. When it all started so long ago, man, it's taking me back. The Boy Who Lived. All right, so the first chapter, we immediately, when we jump into this book, get this comparison between the ordinary Dursleys and then these weird events that are starting to happen in this common British town. And we see Vernon as he goes, uh, makes his trip to work. And the first thing we see that's pretty weird is we see this cat who is... Not just looking at a sign, but what Vernon immediately thinks might be actually reading the sign, but he quickly tries to make himself think that, you know, cats can't read because that's not really normal, right? We see this big idea of something that is not really fitting in the normal life, which for me, remembering when I read it the first time, you know, really pulled me in thinking, wow, there's, there's something really weird going on here and I, I have to know what's going on. But what about you guys? What do you think? I mean, how did he know that the cat was reading the sign? Cats don't have a particular look. I mean, I have two cats, and I've never looked at them and said, oh, they must be reading that. 
I wonder what made him think the cat was reading the sign. I imagine the cat on the sidewalk just uh, holding the newspaper between his little paws and uh, very, very clearly and obvious. I'd, I'd imagine this this whole chapter is very uh, cartoonish, and that I'd, I'd love for Vernon to have seen that. I don't, think, I don't think it was in the movie. That could have been a very cool scene. Yeah, it could have. Agreed. It, it sounds to me like Vernon is trying to talk himself out of thinking anything strange is going on. Obviously, he knows about wizards. We don't know that at this point. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's tricky yep. because after you've read it already, you know, you have these... Um, these notions already in your mind but it's interesting because the the dichotomy between the the muggle world and the magical world is sort of already being established by this very first part of the chapter yeah i i guess uh i guess vernon didn't have to think that he was going crazy necessarily because if i saw a cat just reading a newspaper i would i would immediately seek help yeah i agree and i i think look, looking more um as we sort of go into this chapter we you know we see these dursleys as these people who are trying to completely ignore anything out of the ordinary. Um, and something that I thought about more this time that I didn't really pick up on later is, as the series goes on, we pretty much see the Dursleys as this sort of minor villain, um, certainly not to the extent of like Death Eaters or Voldemort, but they're the foil for Harry, you know, while he's in the muggle world. But really early on, we don't really think about them that way, at least not super early. Because we just see them trying to, you know, cuddle their their precious son and keep him away from anything that's normal. And it made me think, you know, what did I think about the Dursleys the first time I read this? Before I really knew how they would treat Harry, how closed-minded they were about everything related to magic. So what do, do you guys remember, you know, what you thought about the Dursleys the first time you read? I mean, unfortunately, I, I saw the movie first. How they were portrayed in the movie was carried over for me into the book. Um, but I do, I do think that just like you said, I think that they're just coddling Dudley and just trying to, I I think they're overprotective is what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I scolded you for that cat. If I remember correctly, you you (laughs) did. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's interesting though, because I think even by the fourth page, my impression of Vernon is that he's just kind of a, a pompous jerk. And I think more so because of sort of the interaction that it talks about with his um, his co-workers, you know. And it's saying, you know, he had, he had yelled at, you know, five different people already this morning and then shouted some more. And so I think I had a pretty negative opinion of him from almost the beginning. You know, it's hard to say because, you know, like Kat's saying, you do have sort of these notions already in your head after reading them. And of course, seeing the film, the film definitely paints um, the picture right off the bat. Personally, I found them a bit ridiculous. Yeah, I agree with that too. <laughs> they were just extraordinarily cartoonish, just with in every single action. Dudley, especially when we read through these chapters, he, he's done terrible things. You know, why why did Joe set them up quite so evilly and fake? And she's really setting up the discourse of good and evil in the series. And I I, I really like how evil is going to get from cartoonish to more real, uh, a more real layer of it when we see Voldemort. You know. Yeah, that's true. It gets darker and darker as you go on. That's a good point. Yeah, because, I mean, immediately it's like the setup, like you said, this dichotomy of Harry versus, like, whatever else is there. Like, he is clearly, like, we are following him in this battle against whatever form evil takes. And, and sort of, and how could we not? Because right. he's just this victim. So she she really sort of aligns her sympathies immediately. Let's, let's move forward. Thinking more about um, this denial of magic by the Dursleys, I... I th- I thought more a lot this time about like what what does that really come from? You know, what are their motivations for trying to push this magic away and you know shutting it out of Harry, 
making sure that it's nowhere in their house. And I, I thought a lot more about like Petunia's history, you know, she's growing up in, in a muggle family, um, but then she, they find out they have this magical born daughter um, that's completely different from the rest of them who gets treasured by her parents and Petunia kind of gets pushed to the side. And I wonder if, you know, that has a lot to do with why, you know, particularly Vernon is trying to push it away so that he doesn't, you know, upset his wife. I, th I think that's true. I think all this magic stuff represented so much emotional torture for Petunia. Maybe Vernon even knew that, and that's why he was so hasty in covering it up or pushing it away because, you know, Petunia, Petunia was really hurt by it all. So maybe he's trying to, trying to help her. And if that's the case, it really humanizes his character, and he's not so bad, maybe. What do you think of that? Do we really think it all stems from the jealousy that Petunia felt towards Lily? Or is, just, is Petunia just so impressionable that after Vernon reacted the way he did, it was easier to hate it than to be jealous? I don't know what Vernon believes necessarily, but Petunia's jealousy was like the biggest thing. Like we in the in Snape's worst memory, that was that was huge, right? Yeah. Well, true. I mean, we we learn on Pottermore, um, chapter two, scene one, which we're going to discuss more later. When Petunia told Vernon about her past and that her sister was a wizard, it says that he was deeply shocked. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he disapproves. It just means that he was shocked. Mm -hmm. I think he disapproves, though. I mean, I think based on the way that Joe paints his character, I think he's he's quite a square, right? I mean, he likes things the way they are. That's probably why he and Petunia got together so well. I mean, they like normalcy, they like things to be neat and orderly. I mean, the magical world doesn't fit into <laughs> into that, you know, behavior of being so square. So, um, you know, I do like the idea that 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 Vernon feels this um you know protection towards Petunia and and so he he kind of defends her her fear and her jealousy and all that but I also think he personally has a real issue with anything magical it just doesn't fit into his world he certainly does and I think Petunia was particularly striving to find someone like that given so you think he would react like that regardless of whether or not Petunia had a magical uh, family member. Yeah, I, I think he does, and I, th and, I, and I think she only reinforces that um, for him. Okay, so what about the letter? Like, when Harry's left on the doorstep, and Petunia, as we as mm -hmm. we learn later, is the one that finds him. Right. Does she show the letter from Dumbledore to Vernon? Or does she keep I, that I to herself? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure he, she showed it. Absolutely. What a moment that must have been. I wish we could have seen that scene. So do you think when he sees the letter that he knows the history do you think he knows who you know who is and what has happened why mm. this is important that harry is with them i don't think he knows that that in depth i think he knows that you know that it's that world certainly exists but i don't think he or maybe even lily knew that you know james uh excuse me petunia knew that james and lily were like on the run in hiding because they didn't talk well i i do question sort of how much he really knows though because I, I remember that in this very first chapter, you know, he sees the people dressed in cloaks and they make him uneasy, but it seems like he's not sure why. Mm -hmm. But they've obviously discussed it before because later in the chapter, it says that he realized things strange were going on. He says, he, right. you know, he puts two and two together with the owls and the shooting stars and the weird clothes. Right. But I guess, I guess my point is he doesn't seem to know all the details, though. And, and maybe that's because Petunia doesn't even feel comfortable to discuss anything detailed with him. She knows more than he does, right? I mean, that's my assumption. Yeah, I think definitely she does. He's definitely heard whisperings. Like, when they, when they went to the Potter's wedding, which was the big blow-up, we can, we can read into that on Pottermore. 
he just maybe they didn't he didn't necessarily hear hear about you know who, but he knows a great probably knows a bit about the Wizarding World from the various connections that they've had over the years. Actually, it was only the two, so maybe not. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if he knows exactly kind of what's going on from the moment that the cat starts happening. He puts that out of his head, but I, I bet deep down he knows that's this. The magic world is coming in. Speaking of the the wedding and such, I mean, we learn more about that in Pottermore, but we also learned that at that wedding, James and Vernon gets in a really large fight. So do you think that they were friendly before that? And the fight is kind of what jumped it off. I mean, not not friendly. Maybe like civil to the point of where they didn't like fight, but yeah. I, I, I always get this idea that Vernon certainly looks like on their kind as like a lower class. Like, um, I mean... He casts anyone who dresses like that as someone, I think there's like some text where he says they should have like a collecting tin. He didn't see one. So that's what confused him. Like he always sees them as someone lower than him. So it's something condescending always. Do we, do we know what started the fight? As Vernon tried to pay, um, patronize him, yeah. James was amused by Vernon and made the mistake of showing it. Yeah. He's that kind of character. And I, and I bet he would have been, James would have been upset that Petunia and Vernon were disrespecting Lily. He would, would have wanted to go up and, you know, he and Sirius start a little fight. I wish maybe that'll be in the encyclopedia. We can we can read this scene. Wouldn't that be cool? All right. Well, so I think, yeah, that's a lot to, to think on um, with the whole relationship they have. And, yeah, definitely to the fans out there, let us know what you think because it's one of those scenes that and backstories that we don't have much on, but it's really, really interesting. Oh, let's see. Moving on. Um, another really interesting thing I picked out of this chapter, we, we first meet Albus Dumbledore. Um, as he comes to Privet Drive to drop uh, to see Harry to the doorstep of number four. Through the conversation between Dumbledore and Professor McGonagall, I think we immediately get this idea of Dumbledore as this perfect leader. Um, and it becomes a theme that continues throughout the rest of the series. And this really was vivid for me when um, he and McGonagall are talking first about using the name Voldemort versus you-know-who. Um, we immediately get that idea of that. Uh, Dumbledore is not afraid of saying the name and McGonagall, you know, mentions that it's because he was the only one that Voldemort worried about or feared. And then also, you know, McGonagall questions the decision to leave Harry with the Dursleys, but sort of resigns to that decision once she hears Dumbledore's reasoning, you know, ultimately setting up this idea that everything Dumbledore says is right and that his judgment is what everyone falls into line with. Anyone have thoughts on that? I think it also sets him up as the antithesis of Voldemort, or the the equivalent in a way. From the very start, we, we have Voldemort and Dumbledore, and it's all tied by this relationship of fear because Dumbledore is the only person that Voldemort has ever feared. Well, yeah, it was just it was mostly interesting for me because you know McGonagall does raise these questions to Dumbledore, and she sort of like is silenced by what she assumes is the right answer because because Dumbledore says it. I think that's what we see a lot through the series, especially later when Harry starts making decisions and, you know, he questions some things about Dumbledore and members of the order, you know, say, no, it was Dumbledore's decision and I trust Dumbledore. And Harry really questions him. And, you know, this is really the first time we see that that leadership that no one really questions other than Harry. Wasn't it wasn't it kind of weird to see McGonagall in this light? She she never seems to quail before anyone. No, you're, that's right. And that's exactly what I was going to say. We don't know it yet, but I just think McGonagall is such an amazingly strong character throughout the book. She is. You know, it's a very interesting point, Caleb, that you bring up with with her really kind of just succumbing to like, yes, Dumbledore. Oh, all right. You're, you know, 
yes, you're right, of course. Um, so it's it's an interesting thought. I never really picked up on that. And he's really the only one she ever like does that with. I mean, any other character she stands up to and holds her ground throughout the whole series. Except for Harry at some moments. Mm. Good. True. I feel. But I feel like she thinks of Harry as, I don't want to say an equal, but definitely somebody who deserves to be heard. Well, yeah, especially after, you know, Dumbledore's gone. I wonder, I wonder how much it hurt for her knowing that Harry and Dumbledore were working on this track and Dumbledore didn't trust her enough to tell her about the hor- horcruxes, about, about the path, everything, you know? That must have hurt her a great deal, yet she had to respect Harry. Well, I think her, I think her strength comes from her past, and her story is yet another fabulous story that we learned about on Pottermore, and I just, I have, so, I respected her before, and now I have yep. so much more respect and love for her as a character after knowing what she went through for love, and I think that's ultimately, again, one of the biggest themes in this series. Yeah. Yeah. And all these characters seem to come from painful childhoods or painful pasts, and that, that seems to make them great individuals later on. That, I, I wonder if that's the case for all the characters in, in Joe's books, and I wonder why that is, frankly. Maybe just in life, that, that makes you a sort of better individual in the long run. But there also seems to be a theme of it will get better and love, love in the darkness and you will succeed. Like that, that theme carries on throughout. Well, certainly not with Harry and the Dursleys. Yeah, but still, no, at the, no. but still in the, <laughs> still in the end, when when they part for the last time, you kind of see the flicker right. of that. This this is his, uh, this is dark past, and I think it's just sort of a a common trope of the the hero story. Anyway, moving on. Going back to that sort of decision that you know Dumbledore leaves um, Harry with the Dursleys, and you know McGonagall questions it. You know, what do we think about you know that decision? You know, Dumbledore leaves him with the pot with the Dursleys, and. We, we know it was kind of the last-ditch decision, but, you know, maybe it wasn't the best decision. Dumbledore maybe didn't do a good job of predicting that the Dursleys would take care of him well. Uh, McGonagall had an idea that that would happen. I think that Dumbledore so often is afraid of making the wrong decision for the wrong reason that sometimes he doesn't consider all the possibilities. And we find out later that leaving Harry with the Dursleys had nothing to do with it being good for him or that it was family. It was just purely to save his life mm-hmm. and to invoke yeah. that ancient magic that was supposed to save him. So in this case, I think Dumbledore, I think he did the right thing. No, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it was the right reason, but it was the right thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's so interesting, the, the way that love works in the books. Like Dumbledore actually uses this, this force of nature in a very logical way because it has very physical um, uses as, a, as magic. So in a way, he's sort of cold and calculating in the way he makes his decisions, but he's using love. He's using like this very emotional force that, that bonds all. So talk about, the, talk about the alchemy going on here about using, using forces of nature to create actual, actual things happening in the real world. That is it, the, the, this very deep kind of magic, and yet Dumbledore is ap- approaching it so intellectually the entire time. Which is, I think, because he approaches it from that angle. Maybe why he doesn't fully invest in what can happen, you know, in this type of environment for Harry. And he also doesn't have to learn, like, the most powerful dark curses because he has this this powerful love thing. Love juice, if you will, which just <laughs> which just kind of um, is the most powerful force in the series. I mean, it really is. Like, it, it beats Voldemort in the end. I think it's, it's the most powerful magic. How hippie of Joe. <laughs> but yes. I started wondering about that when I was reading. What what if it had taken Voldemort 
uh, say, 10 years to find the Potters, say Pettigrew hadn't betrayed them, do you think the sacrifice still would have been enough? Do you think that it was more powerful because Harry was a baby, or do you think it just is what it is? Oh, had had Lily not died, you mean? Oh, no way. No, I, no, if it had taken longer, if Harry was 10, say, when Voldemort tried to kill her, and, or killed her, and she sacrificed herself to save Harry. The only difference would be that he was a baby then. I can't imagine that would change it, you know? It's still, it, I think it's more in the act of dying for the other person. It, it doesn't matter how old you are, because then babies would get this special sort of uh, privilege. It's an interesting question, though. I mean, I think if you had asked me that, like, 15 months ago, I might have pondered it longer. But now as a mother, I would say it wouldn't matter. He could be 35 and I would jump in front of a bus for him, you know. <laughs> so it's yeah. interesting, like, you know, to think about the sacrifice is a sacrifice regardless of when it happens. So I'd like to think that it would do the same protective, you know, kind of uh, love juice, as you called it, for, for Harry, regardless of when it happened, you know? Yeah. I'm just, now I'm just going to throw this out there because this is a new kind of podcast and we, we talk about anything. Now, the, the dying for somebody else and then, you know, with love and therefore saving them and giving them this protection, this seems essentially Christian a little bit. There's like, there's some allegory going on in here. You know, certain writers out there have played this up. You know, what, what do we think? What do we think on this? What are our opinions just going in as we embark on this journey of reading the books? I, I think that it's more than a religious thing. I think it's a human thing. There are, mm. are many people in the world that I would take a bullet for or, as Hope said, jump in front of a bus. And I am not the most religious person in the world. I am spiritual, I like to say. So I think it goes beyond religion. I think it's just a humanity. A and, yeah, and a love love yeah all right but i do see the connection to christianity i i actually really agree with you um i i agree with kat also but i think it's a very valid point because i think the fundamental belief of christians is love i mean that is i think that we would be foolish not to see that connection um but i also agree that it is sort of um a fact of human nature and, and part of our humanity to to protect the people that we care about. The theme is something that infiltrates so much of, and not just literature, but like something that um, is every day for us. And, you know, as you read, it's so easy to identify with that sacrifice of Lily. Like, I can't imagine there are many people that read that and didn't think of like, you know, who is that person I would do that for? And I think that's why it's it's so like easy to like empathize and just hold on to that as you read through it. Yeah, I think I think the entire Harry Potter series really reflects Joe's own personal spiritualism and beliefs. So moving on to chapter two called The Vanishing Glass. This whole chapter kind of establishes Harry as a very weird, kind of awkward, <laughs> special boy. And at the, at the start of the chapter, it's nearly 10 years after he was left on the doorstep. Um, what do you think happened in those 10 years? Uh, how did Harry talk about it? How how did Harry ask about his parents? Who came up with the lie of the car crash? Mm, yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, I can't imagine like growing up in that kind of environment, like in asking questions that were immediately shot down. Um, I'm such a curious person. I don't know how I would have been able to deal with that. Yeah, it's, those are great questions. I mean, I think over those 10 years, I think Harry learned <laughs> probably very quickly to just keep quiet. I mean, in that environment where um, 
he didn't feel like he was treated equally. Um, but he also seems to sort of take it in stride too. And I wonder how much of that is just his natural personality and how much of that is just the, um, the way that he was nurtured or the lack of, nurturing, right. you know, <laughs> um, sort of that, that debate of nature versus nurture, like how much of it really is kind of him just taking it in stride and, and, um, and how much did they kind of beat into him? Like, this is what happened. This is your status in this household. This is where you sleep because you're below us and you're beneath us. And that's, the oh, place, man. you know, I think that is really I, I, kind of yeah. like metaphorical yep. the way that he sleeps under the stairs. <laughs> like, yeah. wow. <laughs> but I mean, we know that they know he's a wizard. I mean, right. we don't find that out till later, but if he wasn't they showing know. signs of magic, I think that they were just even those few little signs of magic is the reason why they treated him so poorly. I mean, here's this kid that was plopped on their doorstep. They never wanted anything to do with him at all. Um, and on top of that, he belongs to this magical world that is so outside of, of, of the way that they operate. I mean, it's like he's an alien, you know? So, I mean, it, it, it seems as though, and I guess later on you do really feel like Petunia feels protective of him but you don't see that till later you know so it seems like you know he's literally an alien in their household like he doesn't belong and he's so odd he ends up on the roof at one point you know i mean <laughs> so yeah it's those little odd things are already happening before you know his his 11th birthday so i was uh i was reading through all the i was reading through the scene and i was just thinking if i were voldemort and i happen to know this i would uh I would possibly lock Harry Potter in a cupboard because I don't think he'd like it, and he wouldn't. He wouldn't try to fight me anymore because <laughs> he'd probably freak out. I'm, I'm imagine, you know, I'd imagine that he has some sort of emotional scar attached to that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. After after all those years, wouldn't it be it'd be rather funny if <laughs> Voldemort just came and locked Harry in a cupboard instead of you know trying to kill him? <laughs> that would that would pretty much do the same effect. Terrible, terrible. But I, I'm just I'm really surprised that. Harry didn't have any lasting damage from this because it was terrible. If you just, if reading that chapter, all the things that the Dursleys did, ridiculous. You know, I wonder really what, what is that psychological effect that you were kind of alluding to, Noah, um, that he would go with Harry, you know, growing up in that sort of environment where he's really, really suppressed, um, you know, and he, yeah. he like, how, how much of that is, can be, you know, the reason for the way he acts, the way he does is he's growing up despite, you know, having friends later. Like we see a lot of moments where Harry really struggles with growing up um, and being in all of those situations. And how much is that, you know, due to that psychological suppression that he faces? Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to think of a scene and I can't think of any moments where uh, that even comes into play. He, he actually does surprisingly well. We were saying maybe it was that first year of love with his parents or maybe just because of his DNA, but he he does generally well for himself in the in the social sphere. He makes best friends immediately when he gets to Hogwarts. I mean, can you guys think of a scene that he's particularly very self-conscious or tormented by his past? I mean, I think you could argue <laughs> that because of the environment he grew up in, perhaps he just developed a thicker skin. I mean, that happens, you know, in, in our real boring world, um, you know, people, people have terrible things happen to them as children and they do come out, you know, the other side of it being really strong. So perhaps that's why, you know, I mean, when you think about all the things that he goes through and the things that he comes up against and how well he does with them, 
I mean, maybe the Dursleys actually helped him. <laughs> I mean, well, and even with Dudley, so spoiled and uh, some could even argue kind of messed up, but he ends up coming out of it actually appreciating Harry as a person. But do you think the Dursleys realize at all what they're doing to their son? No, I don't think so. I think, again, I mean, I just, like I said before, I find Vernon to be so pompous and Petunia is just like bizarre. So I think that they are not the normal kind of parents. I mean, they're, they're maybe normal in the sense of they are spoiling their kid to the point that he's rotten, but I don't know. Yeah, and as, I mean, as we think about, like, you know, Harry growing up, I'm really curious as to, you know, if the Dursleys, like, raising Dudley also. And we, we know that Petunia is this, you know, mega eavesdropper. Um, we see her, you know, listening in, and listening in to people who are next door and their problems. She's just obsessed listening to other people. But, like, you know, they raise Dudley to, like, be this monster. But, like, how do they actually think about that? And it makes me wonder, are other kids around them? You know, in their, like, society being raised in similar ways. I hadn't thought about that, but it's an interesting point. I mean, I think uh, in any environment, there's going to be parents that spoil their children rotten. So um, I think it's probably, it was something that I could relate to because I, you know, I had friends growing up where I looked at the way their parents treated them and I thought, oh my gosh, like, my dad would never do that or, you know my mom would, would never buy me that or, you know, things like that. So I wonder, um, is this really like a normal thing? I mean, is Joe painting this picture because it's a, it's a normal English family, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's relatable though, you know, I don't think this is a normal English family. This is the, this is definitely part of that very cartoonish part. It's, it's just ridiculous. Um, I don't, and we're going to get into it into the next chapter, but, uh, Dudley brutally murders a tortoise. But you don't think any, any boy has ever done that before? I mean, I have brothers. <laughs> I've watched what they do to living things, you know? I mean, that doesn't seem outside of the norm to me. It was just never addressed, this poor turtle that died. <laughs> After we get this large fight about Harry going or not going with them to the zoo, he ends up going, mostly because Mrs. Fig's not available to watch him. As they're looking at this boa constrictor, Harry starts talking to it. The boa constrictor, I think, realizes something in Harry because she kind of stands up and looks at him. Winks, I think. Mm-hmm. But how do, you th- how do you think the snake knew that? How does magic manifest itself before it's trained? Maybe Parseltongue goes even as far as mannerisms so that Harry was unconsciously doing some movements that the snake sensed as snake-like. Yeah, it would have to be something like that because the snake like knew right off the bat because the snake's like sleeping, you know, Dudley's mad because it's boring and then Harry gets up to the window and they're gone and the snake is like on cue. So mannerisms or, you know, just like maybe the, the way Harry's like unconsciously focusing on the snake, it's almost like, you know, nonverbal communication through parcel tongue. I don't know. Or maybe, or maybe the snake just winks at every, every kid because it's, it's bored out of its mind and Harry is just the first one who saw it. <laughs> uh, uh, I hope that's know? the answer because that's, that's hilarious. I mean, our emotions are really powerful. You can, you can be in a room with someone who f- feels a certain way, whether it's, it's angry or elated, and, and y- you can almost feel it in the air. So I wonder, is it, I mean, is it passed via emotion before he obviously knows he can speak parcel tongue? Well, I mean, well, we, we know that untrained wizards you know kids use their magic through their emotions because i mean 
Because yeah. every time we see Harry frustrated or angry or worried, something happens to him. Spoiler warning, think about Ariana, which, what she did. That was, that was all sort of wandless. She had this burst of emotion and uh, magic within her, and it just would manifest itself in very dangerous ways. So I, I actually wrote a section, a speculative section on MuggleNet about wandless magic in the level 9 section, and it's really just completely driven by emotions. It's very hard to control, and... Dumbledore is said to have some kind of control over it, but you know I wouldn't. It's not. It's not ideal. Yeah, and I mean we. Yeah, we see Harry doing this like these first few chapters. You know when his hair grows back after, mm. um, right. and then jumping up on buildings. So. Do you think that happens all the time though? I mean, we know we find out later that Neville didn't have any magical abilities until the day that he bounced. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely have to vary some. Do you think it depends on the powerfulness of the wizard? Like you're either born powerful and mm. it shows itself early or you grow into a powerful wizard? Mm. That's a good question. Well, I was thinking about this, uh, like growing up with these like emotional moments where magic sort of just explodes, like siblings fight, you know, growing up myself with two younger siblings, I can just only imagine, um, you know, like using magic to like, get back at your brother or sister, like you know, setting their hair on fire and then one of them going to run and tell mom or dad. Um, those kids that are raised in wizarding families where, you know, they're obviously going to be exposed to magic much more. Yeah, they can unmake each other's beds and then go and tell on them to get in trouble. <laughs> well, and I wonder in a wizarding family where the, the kids are, you know, the children are raised, I'm assuming, understanding what this is that's happening when, they ha when their emotions are, are, are running high. Um, does it then happen more often? Because Harry doesn't seem to have any idea as to why these things happen. You know, so I wonder, does it happen more in a wizarding family where it's explained to them from a very young age? Or like Kat said, is it something where you're just born powerful and it happens more frequently, perhaps, if you have more of a gift for it? We lear later learned that Voldemort was using his magic years before he knew. Right. Mm -hmm. right that he was a wizard and he was using it powerful Mal spells, you know, yeah. he was and maliciously. Sick. So yeah, maliciously. Yeah. I think, I think, I think some wizards or witches and wizards are just born with a better connection to their magic because I don't think it's a matter of more powerful magic, but it's, it's a better connection to it. What do you think of that? Joe, yeah, exactly. Joe only chooses to show that with Harry and Voldemort. We never really hear much we never really hear much about it with the others i mean we know like neville it takes him a while to really uh, grow into his magic but that early like emotional connection we only see with harry and voldemort um and i think you know maybe joe does that purposefully to show that you know comparison and contrast right but but harry has like no reaction at all about being able to speak to the boa constrictor do you uh, yeah honestly if i walked into a zoo and i could talk to a boa constrictor I would say, okay, what's going on? Is it me? Am I hallucinating? Am I sick? Well, and you know, I think maybe that's because the Dursleys have for so long, every time something weird happens, tries to come up with an explanation that is logical for it. Like when uh, he tries, to sh uh, Petunia tries to fit that shirt or whatever over his head, and you know, she tries to explain, oh, well, I guess it just shrank in the dryer. Yeah, I mean, I just think that maybe he's become so. Um, I don't know, accustomed to finding logical explanations because that's what he's grown up around. So in a way, they succeeded in stamping the magic out of him yeah. because he doesn't believe in it at all at this point, at yeah. the end of chapter two. Yeah, I think so. Huh. Okay. Okay, so chapter three, the letters from no one. Harry, uh, Harry is punished for a month because of the incident at the zoo. 
And I found this very weird because I know that the Dursleys don't particularly want him to know that he's magic, and yet it seems the worst way to do that is to punish him and make him think that he was the cause of it. So for whatever reason they do this, and the Dursleys just, they're still treating him very, very poorly throughout this chapter. You know, at one point, Dudley and Harry are working out how uh, the new schools that they're going to. It turns out that, you know, Dudley's poking at Harry and talking about how they're going to end up dunking his head in, in toilets when he goes to his school. And, and Dudley just goes on and says, You know, they stuff people's heads down the toilet the first day at Stonewall, he told Harry. Want to come upstairs and practice? And th this just seemed very weird to me that, that Harry would just be so quick on the uptake. And he was like, No thanks, said Harry. The poor toilet's never had anything as horrible as your head down it. It might be sick. And I thought, <laughs> Wow. That was very clever, Harry. This, ladies and gentlemen, is your first chance of getting to hear Noah do his wonderful character <laughs> impressions. <laughs> Too bad you guys missed me doing the snake before. <laughs> and anyway, do, do you think that for a 10-year-old, Harry's a bit too clever here? Has Joe made him just a, a wee bit too, uh, too intelligent? I mean, it's great for us, and we're going to... I have a feeling that the trio and their conversations are going to be very engaging, even though they're, they're 10 years old, but... Maybe it's it's maybe it's because he's also magical. I don't know, but he just it, it's so like I love his character, but is it real? <laughs> no, I think that he's perfectly clever. My nephew is ten, actually. He just turned eleven, but he and his older sister. This is exactly how they converse. I mean, really? It, yeah, they quips back and forth. I think that that's something you learn from the environment that you're into. I think it's a defense mechanism for him in a way, but I also think that he's just smart. He, he really is. He, he's got this cleverness from his parents. I do have to agree with Kat that um, this is this is perfectly clever for this age. Um, and I think it does, of course, indicate uh, a high level of intelligence. Um, but also I think that they're, and I'm going to put on my teacher hat for a minute, but there's a point around the time of kind of fifth grade, fourth, fifth grade, where the where the sarcasm and the, the witty comebacks really start clicking with kids. Um, and it's not until that point that you really see that come out. And it's part of them testing out their personality and learning a little bit more about how to push the boundaries and, and you know, what's acceptable and what's not. So to me, it's like very natural to see, you know, the back and forth. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Because I definitely remember being that age and being pretty similarly snarky and getting me into a lot of trouble. <laughs> so I can definitely relate to that. Okay, so moving, moving on. Uh, at what point we get another introduction to Mrs. Fig? I think it's, uh, it's during the during the course of the punishment that he can't stay at home because the family has gone away. You know, she's just, she's playing with her cats and she actually offers Harry some cake and he enjoys this. And I'm wondering how much does Mrs. Fig know about, um, why hasn't she been doting on Harry like this throughout the 10 years? Maybe she doesn't know the case at home at the Dursleys. Then again, she must know. I just, I just feel like this is, this is the boy who lived. This is a, he's a, he's a big deal. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I kind of wish Mrs. Fig would have been a little bit more caring to Harry throughout all those years. Or maybe Dumbledore told him she couldn't make him feel particularly special because then he might find out. No, no, that couldn't be. But what did you guys think? I mean, I don't think she knows anything, quite honestly. I think that Dumbledore merely asked her to keep an eye on him, and it's not until much, much, much later that, oh. that, that he tells her anything. I think that she is just there to be kind of his guardian angel, to watch over him, make sure nothing strange or abnormal happens within... A uh, little whinging. He just told her part of the truth, not the full truth. I, yeah, that's that's obvious. So she, just just, you say, think you she know, just okay. knows that, like he's the son of the Potters. That who, because like she clearly like knows his story, right? But yeah, she's gonna learn the story. So I'm thinking that 
she must be like the best babysitter in the world, you know? <laughs> Except for all those. Sans cats. the cats, yeah. Yeah. Love cats. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> so moving moving on, the uh, the mail. Uh, Harry gets his very first letter, and for some reason, I have no idea, he brings it to the kitchen <laughs> and starts opening it there. I would have read it in the hallway myself. Damn it, but... damn it bring that letter to your cupboard, Harry. Or, like, yeah. shoved it under the stairs, exactly. Yeah, that, that was not for this very smart kid. Damn. <laughs> I was just thinking about the way the post works in, in the Wizarding World. We, we haven't really talked about this. We know that there, there's a sort of mail system. There, there are owls who go back and forth, because uh, in the next chapter, Hagrid's going to pick up a uh, the Daily Prophet, and then he pays the... I, I believe it's another owl, or maybe it's a pigeon. But is he only paying that owl because it's a daily profit owl? That, that's a good point. No, be, no, because Hermione, in the much later books, takes out a subscription, and I think that she just kind of pays for that up front. Are, are all owls paid? Or is it owls this, paid this was, by, yeah. by just the ones that are delivering things like the profit? Or No, I mean, I, I think they're paid in some way, because we learn in Prisoner of Azkaban that the prices at the post office in Hogsmeade, there's like different owls for different jobs, depending on what they're carrying or where they're going. I think that they're probably paid in housing, food. But it's true. They, I mean, they have this intelligence, as do a lot of the animals in the, in the series. Do they, do they have unions? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I hope so. I hope they have unions. What would happen if they went on strike? I mean, that, that is a good question. They probably take a shit all over the the post, oh, gosh. the post office. But yeah, I mean they're they're personal owls, and I, there's no there's no payment back and forth because those owls just do it out of love, and perhaps their owners feed them with some worms and such, or no, they go off hunting. That's silly. But I, I wonder how animals are treated in in business here because that is that is that remains unexplained. And if Joe, if you're ever on the show, I'm going to ask you. Encyclopedia, maybe it'll be in there. Yeah. That's a great question, though. What do you guys think? Let's let's have the fans write in. Tell us what you yeah, think about definitely. the post office and the uh, mail in the Wizarding World. Okay, so the letters keep on coming, and ridiculously so. They start. Um, there's that one great scene, if you remember from the movie. It's also it's also here in the book. The the letter pops out of the chimney, and it just hits Vernon in the back of the head, or maybe it's coming from a window. But there are letters everywhere. There's nothing they can do. How do they at Hogwarts, I think it's Professor McGonagall or Dumbledore sending these letters. How do they know where Harry is, what room he's moving to? Because is it, is it some sort of wizard GPS? Are they, are they looking in with a, with a window? Because I know a lot about Harry Potter, but I can't think of a, a sequence of spells that does this. Maybe Hogwarts has, like, like you said, some, 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 part of a, some sort of GPS that locates their students. Maybe they're all... On all young... Uh, Young wizards of witches and wizards of magical magical age. You know? We learn again in Pottermore. We learn that there's this book that mm -hmm. when you're born a wizard, your name is put down in this book. So maybe it just there's like some spell or something. Yeah, or it just appears, or I, I'm not sure. I have no uh, idea. Maybe there's a gigantic Marauders map, like a huge one. Big wow. Brother. <laughs> I mean, Big Brother is watching. The Ministry does this too. They can they can instantly sense uh, magic. Any kind of magic that's being done under a radius, under any students that are that are living in Muggle communities and that are not of age. So we know that there is some kind of system of checking. But what does Hogwarts have? Do they have a magical computer, you know, next to the Chamber of Secrets that allows them to <laughs> somewhere deep in the bowels? I don't know. This they, is... have, they have Dumbledore. Maybe that's enough. 
He just knows so much. His, his logic is such that he knows where any person is in the world and what they will do. It's, now, why couldn't they track down Voldemort with all this technology? I, I, yeah, great know. question. Because Voldemort has a scrambler. A scrambler. Oh. <laughs> I'd imagine that he'd have Death Eaters working to prevent that. All this is done with magic, by the way. They don't. I don't think anybody in the Wizarding World has modern technology, unfortunately. But it's kind of true, and it's kind of... Uh, I was actually reading an article the other day. Uh, I wanted to post it to the site. I didn't get a chance, but... What did they don't really learn about technology in Hogwarts? They don't learn about sex ed, particularly just just math. They have a uh, arithmetic, but uh, no basic addition and subtraction. It's just troubling. Anyway, we'll uh, <laughs> move on. I think they're expected to know that when they get there. True. They probably can't learn how to turn rats yellow if they don't know how to add two and two. Well, for all intents and purposes, we're talking about middle school, right? Uh, by eleven you would be doing, um, you know, beginning algebra. And now we know that that's all the math you need in the Wizarding World. (laughs) 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 Getting back to the chapter. Yeah, Yeah, here's a line from the narrator. Um, After we see on the letter address, or Vernon sees that uh, it was addressed directly to Harry into the cupboard under the stairs, for some reason Vernon thinks it's a great idea to move Harry, you know, upstairs. As if, I, I don't really know what that would change exactly, but... Anyway, it, it creates some drama, and Harry goes and he enjoys the room. But before he goes, there's just this one line from Joe. It only took one trip upstairs to move everything he owned from the cupboard to this room. And then we just get another line. And if you think about that and you just sit, you're like, wait a second. This is terrible. What a poor kid. Harry is, but Harry doesn't lament it at all. There's no other comments about it, and the narrator skips on. And uh, I, read, I read Oliver Twist in, uh, back at college last semester, and the a lot of Victorian writers, they just kind of uh, playfully talk about, they distance, the narrators distance themselves from the protagonist characters, and uh, it it turns out, like with Oliver, he grows up in that that workhouse, and it's just a terrible situation, but the the narrator is playfully cold and distant from the character, and that almost makes you feel it all the more, because nobody's lamenting about it. Did you guys have that experience? Because I sure did, like reading this, uh, now with a college-level education, and what, what did you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because it's something I really didn't even think about. I mean, it's definitely something I've noticed, like you mentioned, with other Victorian writers, and I didn't really think about it here. Um, you know, I was so caught up and, like, you know, like so anxious over what was in that letter the first time I read it that, you know, I almost, like, moved right over the fact that, you know, what a, like, what a little tragic statement that, that is when you really break it down. I mean, I noticed it, but knowing what we know about Harry and how awful his life has been up until this point i just figured that you know he wears dudley's old clothes so why would he have possessions it it didn't Mm -hmm. strike me as odd or out of place for this character although it is tragic and very sad really excellent point noah because um i think that what you're touching on here is something that i would imagine joe purposely did um, which is to to kind of happily sort of skip along through it. And, and what is the impact for us as a reader? I mean, like Caleb said, he missed it. I can honestly say I completely missed that. Certainly the first, you know, 14 times that I read the book, um, I didn't pick up on it. And only after, you know, I've learned how to analyze a text um, would, I have, would I have caught that statement and thought, wow, really, how sad. Um, so I wonder, yeah. was was it her intention? You know, did she write it that way um, purposefully, or 
um, you know, are we maybe reading too much into it? I don't know, but it's a really good point. Yeah. Well, well, as you know, this, uh, this entire book is omniscient, or at least these three chapters are written relatively differently because later we get so much more dialogue and that kind of gets in the way. But here, like we're just getting Carrie's consciousness, but also filtered through this playful narrator, narrators just, uh, showing us all, especially the first chapter. It's, uh, it's purely the narrator. Harry's not even there. And that means these sections are like a gold mine for, for critical analysis. And I would ask all the fans, go. Go there for us and with us. And let's, uh, let's, let's read into this stuff. I'm actually going to post a little section on the front page of uh, the Alohomora section. And right there, you're going to be able to comment on you know, what you think. Like, really look close to the text and look, look at what Joe does. Because it's not, it's, it's very, she does it on purpose. She's, a very, she's very smart. I think in this particular in this particular place, she kind of distanced the narrator a little bit to make Harry, as you guys have been saying, to show that Harry didn't really care, or didn't it wasn't important that he was he didn't have these many possessions. He was so indifferent about it. So he's indifferent. The narrator is pretty indifferent. But we are the read, we as the readers are troubled because of this indifference. It is just it, it's striking. Right. It makes the reader, um, I think, connect with with Harry even more so in that case to to feel that. Um, that longing for him to get out of that environment, the excitement, of course, like Kayla mentioned, what's in the letter? Is he going to get away? I mean, it's just another connection we, we form to the, to the protagonist, right? I mean, it's exciting. Especially, yeah, exactly. with, especially with the contrast to how the narrator is treating Dudley. Oh, my, oh absolutely. There are a million places in this, in this uh, one chapter alone where Dudley does a number of terrible things. I was shocked. He chucked a poor tortoise, like, through the roof just because Harry got this room. And I just, like, at, when I was younger and I was reading this, I'd be like, yeah, that's Dudley. He, he sucks. But now I'm thinking, a, a tortoise, that was a living creature. And he just, he just brutally murdered it. And we just read a brutal murder, the first one in the series. I mean, if you don't count the Potters. And I, personally, I want to resolve this on this show. We have to name it. Oh, no. I don't know. I want to have a service. <laughs> for the turtle <laughs> i want to at least give it a name so is this one of those tangents that you were speaking about earlier <laughs> it is yeah i think we'll just call him myrtle because it rhymes and we'll stick with that myrtle the turtle okay wait is that from dr seuss no that's better than uh yes <laughs> oh no really i think it might be from dr seuss it might be someone google it i'm on it yurtle the turtle we could call him Yurtle. Whatever. I like Yurtle better. We already have a Myrtle in this series, so. Oh, that's right. We do. Okay, Yurtle it is. There you go, Noah. So, do you feel better? I'm, yeah, I'm satisfied. He's dead and buried. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we have another. We have another scene where uh, Vernon's. Uh, you know, he's trying to fill all the, the holes again around the door. Now around the downstairs window, and he's singing this song, "Tiptoe Through the Tulips." And for those of you who don't know. This song was. Uh, let me let me bring up the information. I just uh, another cool thing I'd like to do with this uh, this chapter discussion is there are a lot of different references of uh, various artists, especially here, and I actually wanted to listen to "Tiptoe Through the Tulips" because Vernon was nervously humming it. So on the Wikipedia page, it was a popular song originally published in 1929. The song was written by Al Dubin and Joe Burke, and. Uh, it was actually made more popular in 1968 by Tiny Tim, and it, the version charted at number 17 that year. So, yeah, I'd like you to play it. I'm willing to bet that Vernon was thinking of this version, because he would have been, you know, not necessarily youthful, but within that range, he's probably listening to this song, and it's a weird song. Let's, uh, let's give it a listen. Oh. 
Oh my goodness. I don't like it at all. I know. Does anyone else have that like sort of visceral reaction of wanting to like shiver? I don't know. There's something about this that makes me. Yeah, I, I, there's there's so much wrong with everything that's happening there. I can't even. Now what we do, we're, we're bringing in a different text. This text has been referenced in the books, and now we're going to use it to analyze the section. We're going to analyze the chapter. So what does tiptoe through the tulips, what kind of weight does that have on Harry Potter, on Vernon Dursley? Go. Okay. Interesting question. So obviously, I mean, the, the most obvious connection I see, okay, tiptoeing. So we're tiptoeing around the issue in that the magical world is trying to contact Harry Potter, right? Yes. So, so, oh, so, nice. Okay. So so we're, we're tiptoeing, we're, we're walking on eggshells kind of idea, you know, not, not addressing the issue head on. Um, tulips boy i have nothing on tulips right now i'm still creeped out by that song i'm not gonna lie to you so uh i'm gonna pass the uh the torch now and let somebody else try <laughs> um i i think that he's just incredibly happy that he thinks he has figured out how mm -hmm. to get these letters out of his nose and this is the most cheerful song that he can think of cheerful <laughs> my goodness messed up cheerful. horrifying let us not delve into the mind that is vernon dursley <laughs> It also said that he was on edge in that section, so he just must have been imagining that there were little little devils around the house sneaking letters in. He I mean, he couldn't imagine what we're doing, it. and you know these little things. Why would he want to sing a song about that? But that is very frightening. Well, what better but, what, what better voice to put you on edge than Tiny Tim? Hmm. Yes, that was hey, it was uh, it was popular. It, it was the '60s though. <laughs> So great! I mean, that's the end of chapter three. I'm excited to hear what the what the fans have to say about what you brought up. Yeah, be sure to like let us know because we obviously don't have all the answers, and we want to be able to hear what you guys have. Right. Go to alohamora.mugglenet.com to send us your thoughts. First, firstly, we're going to have different discussions on the main page where you can comment. If you want to discuss the podcast directly, there will be another page for that where you can talk about everything we talked about. If you'd like to send a, an email question directly feel free to email us at alohamorapodcast at gmail.com. So what we're going to do now, every episode we're going to have, um, at this point in the show, some sort of special feature. It's going to vary week to week, depending on you know, what we decide to pull in. This week, in celebration of Pottermore finally opening to everyone. Yes, cheers everywhere. Hopefully everyone is starting to really get in now. So this special feature we are calling Pottermore In Depth. Um, so basically, we're going to, in this feature, look at the chapters and the scenes that align with the few chapters we've chosen from the books. And so for this episode, we are looking at chapter two of the Sorcerer's Stone, obviously, scene one. The cupboard under the stairs is the scene we are looking at. <clears throat> and you might, now that we have sounds on Pottermore, you'll be able to hear um, what we're assuming is some sort of deadly playing video games um, in the background. This one, uh, this seems really interesting. The new content on this page is on Vernon and Petunia. And as we mentioned earlier in the episode, we start to really get more of the backstory on Vernon and Petunia, how they met, and also this really strained relationship between um, the Dursleys and the Potters and why there's this breakdown between the two. Um, so what were some of the big things that, you know, you guys... you really got out of this section. For me, it just humanized the characters a great deal. We get them in the beginning as these, uh, you know, ridiculously uh, very private, 
they're very private people, but rather mean to Harry. But that's really the only viewpoint we get. But here, you, you know, you see their you see their past. You see that love was there. It was you know in a way kind of kind of beautiful, in in its simplicity. But they they are real people, and I think. Maybe maybe Joe feels like she she wrote these characters a bit too hastily, and then that's why in the, in the seventh book she brought it she brought it back a little bit. You see a little bit more in depth, but they they are people. Uh, she really wanted to make them people, and I, I I love this that we we can have the opportunity to look like in it all of their lives, including all the characters we get. Yeah, I agree. I think this is the most exciting part of, of Pottermore was um, some of these kind of backstories, as you will. So uh, hearing particularly the section that talks about the first meeting between Lily and at her at the time her boyfriend, you know, James, um, and how, uh, <laughs> you know, Vernon tries to sort of patronize James and James just thinks like Vernon's ridiculous and kind of the back and forth that happens, like Vernon asking what kind of car he drives, he describes his broom, you know. It, I just, <laughs> I can just kind of imagine these scenes playing out in my mind, you know, of how that would look and it's 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 comical but also it's so important as you said that it does humanize these characters and that they are truly people and they have their own stories stories that we don't hear about in the books you know but um very important pieces that help make them who they are so it's really enjoyable to read it makes me sad for like sisters out there who can't be sisters for whatever reason it was a rough relationship there that we only got at the end and it really was jealousy. I mean, we know that Petunia wrote that letter to Dumbledore. Utter, utter jealousy. She wanted to be part of the world, which is weird considering we know the character she has grown up to be. So maybe maybe she could have ended up completely different. Yeah. Yeah, and they do talk about how um, they, I mean, Joe, it talks about how, you know, once Petunia's married, she grows more like Vernon. And I think we talked about this earlier on in the podcast, that she really likes everything being kind of neat and orderly. And, and she feels that she's kind of escaped the world where things are strange and that's more comfortable for her. But it also does make us so sad, too, because as readers, of course, we're fascinated and in love with the magical world. And she's like, get me as far away from that as possible. But the th- there's people like that in our world, too. I mean, think sure. about all the people who have burned the books and said they're evil and they're awful. And it, it, I think that Petunia is one of those people. Right. Yeah, you're you're right. I think that you can you can relate her character to some, you know, people within our own society, whether out of fear or ignorance, you know, um, form opinions about things and feel very strongly about things. And, and it's yeah, it's kind of amazing. I particularly enjoy the, the very first paragraph where it talks about how Petunia and Vernon met, how they mm. they met at work and you know, he was large and necklace. <laughs> it, just... it was perfect. Love at first sight. He had the perfect car and he wanted to do ordinary things. They went on dull dates and everything about him was predictable. And I mean, that's what made Petunia fall in love with him. Yeah. Does anyone recall the, uh, the first detail about Petunia's neck? Between them, between them, they have enough neck for two people. It's beautiful. <laughs> do, do you think that that Dudley's neck is per- perfectly proportioned. Well, no, no, no. I think it, it says that his is pretty much like uh, Vernon's. Because you'd think when two necks of the, that caliber come together, you get a, a normal sized neck, but evidently not, because they're the Dursleys. <laughs> well, I think it's beautiful that these these abnormal necks finally got together in the in the end. It's, it's, yeah, and we we even learn here in the third paragraph about how she told Vernon about Lily and 
you know, her quote unquote freak of a sister, which I think is fascinating. How it says uh, Petunia threw herself upon him in violent gratitude. Right. It's exactly the reaction she wants, right? Be be horrified by what my sister is and and take pity on me because I'm related to her. <laughs> I think that must have been part of the attraction, honestly. Of course. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> how much do you think? How much do you think she told him? Do you think she just said? Hey, my sister, she's a freak, she's a witch, and she's marrying a witch. I'm sure there was there was a, one night where it just all came out in tears, and she just she let it all out in whatever confused form she knows of the magic, magical world, because she, it says at the bottom of the page that she she doesn't know a lot. She has a, a rather ignorant view, which is weird because uh, Lily grew up in that house, you know, mm-hmm. right. for seventy years. Oh, right, but, that's the comment about when they try to um, escape that old superstition about witches cannot cross water. Yeah, that's why they they took off to the to shack, yes. yeah. Okay, so maybe she doesn't know much about the history of witches or and wizards, but she obviously knows about the world because later, because yeah. later oh, we yeah. find out, you know, when she spits out what a dementor is. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Good point. Yeah, I'd imagine it was one crazy night. She told all, and Vernon was slightly appalled, but he hugged her. He hugged her quietly, and he was, we will not let this magic get to our child. Do not, do not worry. Wow. In one of those. <laughs> anyway, um, bringing the conversation slightly, slightly not necessarily darker, but a little bit more serious. Um, we know that if you if you die for someone in the in the in the wizard world under a certain circumstance, if say Voldemort or a crazy killer is trying to kill your child, and you instead block it with your own self, they are magically protected. Now I'm wondering if Petunia. It, it's a terrible situation, but if the same thing happened to Petunia and he she was trying to save Dudley. I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm sure that she loves Dudley as much as Lily loves Harry. That's just the truth, because you know, love is the same throughout. But obviously, she she doesn't have any magic in her. But would Dudley have any sort of form of protection? Because isn't isn't like isn't love so powerful that there is a kind of magic that transcends the if you have a, you're of magical blood or not? No, I don't. Uh, I don't. No, think would. I don't think so. He's 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 not a wizard, so therefore the protection of her blood is not in him isn't that unfair well sure it's unfair but but i mean but it it does pose the question what about um wizard parents who give birth to a squib squib yeah Mm -hmm. would they have magical protection i I think there's a lot of uh, ambiguity there and i sort of want to put this to joe and, and ask her why she's posed the wizard community of humans as more divine than muggle humans are able to protect each other in this way. It just, it, cause it doesn't like, why should wizard love be more powerful than muggle love? Cause it just, it, cause it all seems to speak to this real human love, you know? Could you argue that maybe there's more danger within the magical world and therefore, you know, that's the reason behind her creating, you know, the, 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 the love protection, the love juice. I mean, we could say love has magical qualities, period. That's what I'm saying. And if uh, if your if your son is being threatened by like a like a killer, it doesn't matter if it's Voldemort or if it's uh, if he's got a gun. You know, it's the same thing. I agree with Hope. I think that there's you know has there's a balance aspect of it because like magic brings inherently more danger. Like there's this other side of it where they give the advantage of like the love actually creating a more protective shield than you know would with Mongols. Maybe it's just an amplified version of what we have in our normal world. Right. Yes. Yes. I like that a lot. Like, it because it's a real natural thing. But when you're when you have magic in you, it's it, it's like exemplified or it's brought out hugely. 
but we're going to, we're going to talk about love juice all the time. So. Oh yeah. I mean, throughout everything. Yeah. So go to the, go to the forums, write about it. And you can also answer this question. It's another one of our special features. Every week we are going to pose a question to the fans. Um, this is something that we want you to answer, to write about on the forums. And these questions usually more often than not will be what we read on the show the next week. So if you give us a great intelligent answer, you could be on the show. So Noah, what is our posed question of the week? The question is, in the last chapter, we find Vernon, a muggle, vainly trying to fool magic in the wizarding community. This case is extraordinary. Extraordinary. So muggles manage to do anything. Of, it, it seems that muggles don't seem to do anything of significance in the Harry Potter series. By and large, they seem to just be a mess of ignorant obstacles and victims, really, especially looking at the Dursleys. So given, given the narrator's view of muggles and what we know of the series, so I really want to fo you guys to focus on that language, is there any likelihood at all of these communities ever joining or, you know, even commune in the future? Because we know that a big, big plot question of the Harry, the Harry Potter series is, uh, the, with the statute of secrecy in place, can muggles and wizards ever, witches and wizards ever sort of, you know, connect? Is there any, can there ever be some form of connection, sharing? Could, could wizard kind, you know, share some magic or teach some, some magic tricks. Could the uh, muggle side perhaps teach the wizard community some math, you know, and some basic history? That's, we know that Dumbledore, Grindelwald, and even Voldemort had different ways of viewing this question, possibly just bringing the humans and putting them on a lower standing and, and just sort of dominating the earth, or possibly connecting. But this question is still left unanswered when the, even when the series was over. So I'd like to know what you guys think. We're going to post this question right on the front page, and you can just comment below. I think it's a really great question, first off, and and I my personal opinion would be that <laughs> the answer is yes and no. <laughs> I think that there's probably um, people within the muggle world that will, um, you know, happily sort of engage in that cultural interaction, so to speak, and there are others that are so narrow-minded they would never be able to get past the fact that there just is a magical world. Um, so I, I think that, that it's certainly a possibility, but it, it would probably be a select group of muggles that would engage. And vice versa. I mean, there are, as we know, witches and wizards that um, certainly believe that muggles are just, you know, the lowest of the low. And so um, in, in that case, wouldn't be able to have that sort of uh, communication between the two groups of people. So... I definitely think that there would be a power struggle, but I agree that it would definitely be possible with a select group of, of people from each side. Uh, I mean, I agree. I think it's, you know, without trying to go too far off the deep end, I think it has a lot of parallels to, like, the societal issues, like, we have to face um, and that are, like, have faced in history, you know, without trying to go too much in detail with all those and that some of them that we are still facing, like, you know, all the time um, with cer certain groups of the population. And, and just race, racism. Yeah, I mean, yeah, racism um, is a big one for sure. It's and obviously it took us a long time to you know be able to get to that place, and we're we're still not completely there. I would argue, you know, that's yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I don't think it's something that's going to become too easily. And there will always be those that um, aren't really sitting well with any sort of compromise, no matter what happens. Yeah, I mean, it's all about the uh, the we see we see the pure blood, mud blood, uh, not mud blood, Muggle born thing going. Throughout the entire series, it's a, uh, it's just it's just a power struggle. But we know that the those uh, pure-blooded families are slowly dying off as it, it gets more and more into the Muggle community. So this to me seems that we're uh, you know it's moving towards the Muggle world, whether the whether they know it or not, whether they want it or not. And it's just it's the way things go. 
and you know, to me, that signals that at a, at a certain point there will be this great, great joining, which is what I think Joe intended. And, and but I'd really, I'd really want to see what you all think in the comments. So please go to, please go to the Aloha More section right on the main page, and you know, come and have a discussion. Well, alohamora.mugglenet.com. And right. um, if you're, if we like your answer, you give us a, a great piece of something to think about. Uh, we'll mention you on next week's episode. We're going to be covering um, Sorcerer's slash Philosopher's Stone, um, chapters four through six. So read up. That way you can join in the conversation. Yeah. And thanks a lot, Hope, for coming on the show. Absolutely. You Thank you for yeah, the yeah, invitation. Definitely. It was, uh, was great. Shout out to my to my kids at Denver Montclair International School, but um, really just uh, a, a huge hello and um, a thank you to the fandom in general. I mean, I'm I'm thrilled to be a part of this. Um, I've been in love with Harry yeah. Potter for years, so um, it's so nice to be a part of it. So thanks. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you for coming, and you should definitely come on another show at some point. Absolutely. In the meantime, I'll be listening and writing. So, <laughs> I just uh, I just want to quickly put something out there. We've been working on MuggleNet, uh, the other three of us, for a while now. And as the last movie has come out, you know, stuff has seemed to slow down a little bit. There has, has been a little bit of aftermath or fallout. A lot of fans are wondering, what, where's MuggleNet going to go? Where's the Harry Potter fandom going to go? And I don't, I don't want to get too big, but we, we just spent a little while having a very good discussion. We're not, we're not doing much. We've just created the space for fans everywhere to just continue the discussion. Let's, let's go back to the books. We've we've likely read them all, so we can use this we can use this knowledge to just have more interesting conversation, and and keep talking about it. We can understand these books in new ways. We can go through the Dumbledore, this mysterious place, and we can we can just have a lot of good times. So MuggleNet is going to be deeply invested in this section. It's going to be doing some other stuff in in terms of academics and, and comparing Harry Potter to big literary theories as well. And you can you can listen to both the both of these, but just know that we're going to continue to do this. We're like we're like a moving train. There's there's no end in sight. We're going to bring this to new generations. Harry Potter's still there, and we're we're just going right back to where we left off. Noah, why don't you tell the fans how they can be a part of the show? If you would like to be a host on the show, please send us an email at alohomorapodcast at gmail with a recording attached of yourself telling us something you found interesting about a particular passage in the Harry Potter series. It's very important that your audio quality is top-notch, as that's going to weigh quite heavily on who we choose to be our next host. And just for everyone, uh, to make sort of highlight all of our contact information, and of course, all of this is going to be on our website, which I'll remind you again is alohamora.mugglenet.com. We do already have a Twitter and a Facebook up. The Twitter handle is alohamoramn, so M as in muggle, N as in net. Go ahead and start following us. Um, and our Facebook is facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore and go ahead and like our Facebook page so you can keep up with the updates there. That's it. I'm Noah. And I'm Caleb. And I'm Kat. Thanks for listening to episode one of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. Oh, one moment. Ian's feeding me some steak. Mm. <laughs> mm. Okay. Mm. Mm. All right. So. Wait, wait. Finish chewing before you talk. Mm. We can keep this in the show. It gives us character and humanizes us. Mm. Anyway. I'll anyway. leave that. I'll leave that up to Laura. <laughs>